1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
0: It's such an honor to present this next award.
1: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar
0: goes to. And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you
1: like
2: me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. We are recording uh, on the day the Oscar nomination voting closes on Tuesday at the close of a very busy weekend in Los Angeles for people giving speeches and dressing up and um, shaking hands and getting in those last days of campaigning. As you hear this, Oscar uh, nominations voting is over. They will be announced on Tuesday. Uh, so we will run down kind of what we learned from that last weekend of campaigning and look a little bit ahead to Sundance, which kicks off this week as well. Um, Rebecca, you were our person on the ground for a three uh, fairly large scale. Events maybe the largest being the Critics' Choice Awards over the weekend. Um, how are you feeling? How are your feet? Uh, how's
2: everybody doing out there? I think it was a, a pretty fun weekend. I mean, um, it was. I sort of felt like Goldilocks. It was like one event was too crowded, one event was not busy enough, <laughs> and then one of I, I don't know. It was it was quite a weekend, so. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. You know, it, I think it was really um, interesting to hear a lot of speeches and also see who was getting the most attention around the rooms um, in the events that didn't have speeches. So, it, and, and I talked to a ton of people, just asking them about their favorite films to sort of see wh- where the the feeling is at in the room.
1: I mean, the feeling in the room at the end of the Critics' Choice Awards on Sunday was such a brilliance for everything, everywhere, all at once. Was the, did you get that feeling even before then?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. That like that. They were kind of pushed back in in a, a table in the like most crowded corner of the room and, at the Critics Choice Awards. At the Critics Choice Awards, and not back, but like a li- a little bit of the more crowded area. And the energy from that section of the room was definitely so. Exuberant, And people were just rushing over to that area during every commercial break. You just could feel it, that the excitement was just building. Even when they won things that weren't um, presented on air, that were sort of just like (laughs) thrown on a screen, like screenplay, their whole area would just like leap out of their chairs. So there was definitely a lot of energy there.
1: Yeah, Richard and David, you guys and I were all watching it at home. Like, I, I feel like we could sense that energy. And just watching, like, I think Daniel Kwan, like, sit up on a chair and, like, threw his hands up in the air when they won Best Picture at the end of the night. Like, it was it was very palpable even through a TV screen.
3: Yeah, especially because they had maybe expected to win the Golden Globe for Best Musical Comedy. Fair enough. Um, and then didn't. And so this was a more like, OK, we get to re- redo it, as did Charlie Ralph and a couple other people who won at Critics' Choice who didn't win the Globes. But, yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely a great—in um, as, as much as people pay attention to the Critics' Choice Awards, like, it was a good groundswell. I mean, there were enough people in that room who are going to be voting for, you know, or did vote for Oscar nominations and will be voting for the winners uh, to see that infectious energy. You know, that helps.
0: It was a nice balance of people who found a lot of momentum at the Globes maintaining that, like Angela Bassett and yeah. Kihi Kwan— um, I'm happy to hear them give 10 more speeches uh, over the next few months, which I have a feeling we might. And then giving people who didn't get that moment for one reason or another, I guess less than a week uh, ago um, on that stage, people like Brendan Fraser, who for many reasons did not win the Golden Globe, was not there if he did win the Golden Globe, uh, and Cate Blanchett, who was not there. Um, so you got a little bit more fluidity in those lead acting races. You got everything everywhere all at once, a chance to sort of dent the momentum of those Golden Globe winners and really overall indicate that things are quite fluid up top uh, in a yeah. pretty exciting
3: way.
2: I will say I feel like that was a huge moment for Brendan Fraser. I mean, yeah. he, again, in the room, like everyone was coming up to him and – and, you know, he has that relationship with Kihu Kwan, and they had a like, cool moment um, as he was taking the stage. And it just felt like the whale had a actually really, really good week, especially for Brendan. But the whale also got PGA, which I think was a big surprise. So it just feels like they, he needed that moment. And, and I think that was really key for his uh, race.
1: Yeah, we, had, um, we got a couple of listener emails about the Critics' Choice Awards. And I would say a lot of uh, listener emails about uh, To Leslie. We'll get there. I promise, guys. Um, but Rosie <laughs> wrote about the Critics' Choice Awards and Banshee's getting uh, overlooked. It got blanked, basically, at the Critics' Choice Awards. Um, I wasn't fully stunned by it because you can see the stiff competition in all the categories it's up for. I i don't think the Oscars will repeat the same thing, um, but she was kind of horrified on behalf of Brenda, of, um, of Colin Farrell. But, David, as you wrote, it's it's a three-way race, as you were telling me at the Globes, and I was ready to write it off, but you but you were right.
0: I have never fully... Re- I have not removed Brendan from my top spot. Uh, I've, I have I. had a feeling a moment like this would come and that it would kind of knock everyone out when it did, and that seems to be what's happened. Mm-hmm. This race is far from over, but um, I would say he's back in that position of the career narrative is very strong for him, and it, it's, it's a force. Uh, they each have things going for them. Uh, but in terms of the broader Banshees question... Yeah, it's, it's a critical darling. I do think at times this group can get looped in <laughs> wrongly with groups like uh, like Richard's groups, like the New York Film Critics Circle or National Society of Film Critics. You mean the
1: fancy ones? The mm. highbrow ones, let's call them. I think the word
0: you're looking for is prestigious.
1: <laughs> <I see>. Yeah,
0: <laughs> kind of. Um, and so this is a movie that has its particular appeal. It's Martin McDonough. And very Martin McDonough, I should say. It is very Irish and very wordy in a good way. And for me, if I'm looking at precursors, the only concern for whether this movie can't win anything is if it loses everything at BAFTA. Because that's Mm -hmm. going to be its ultimate test. And especially for Colin Farrell, in the same way when Benedict Cumberbatch lost BAFTA to Will Smith, that was pretty much the end of the road for him. I think that's going to be the same for Colin Farrell. He will probably have to win there.
2: Yeah, I mean, they were honored with a special award at the AFI Luncheon, which was on Friday. Uh, the only problem was Colin and Brendan both uh, tested positive for COVID. So they weren't at anything this weekend. So you did feel sort of a, a hole in the room when it came to that aspect of um, being a part of this race. Uh, Martin McDonough was there and Barry Keoghan also was present. But um, I think it still feels like that film is very much a real contender. I agree. Fraser's speech was really in line with what our, our, our beloved former
1: co-host Joanna Robinson pointed out on Twitter, that so many of the speeches this season are about, like, I was around for decades and you weren't paying attention to me. Like, he, who, quants, like, comeback story, Jennifer Coolidge, like, working in the trenches of American Pie sequels forever. Brendan Fraser's right there. Even Angela Bassett, to some extent, um, Cheryl talked Cheryl Lee Ralph, about certainly. It.
0: Yeah. Nisi yeah. Nashbats
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really, you see the strength in that. And with Colin Farrell, like, he also had his ups and downs in Hollywood, but, like, his success has been more consistent and like, it makes we wonder if that is helping keep and Fraser top of mind.
0: Also with the Academy, they tend to be a bit more immune to that stuff than mm. other, you know, end-of-year voting bodies. Like, I remember Glenn Close's speeches and how powerful they were and how that Golden Globes moment for the wife seemed to firm something up for her, but the Academy just didn't quite care about that part as much. They didn't care about the movie, they liked her performance enough to nominate it, but that can... Stop uh, just mm-hmm. before they cross the finish line. Um, Sylvester Stallone was another one where that was a big narrative, and I was thinking about that in terms of Angela Bassett, particularly because I don't think a lot of people thought of her as a front runner until these wins. And there should be some caution. I, I still think that Black Panther, even with the PJ nomination, is probably not going to get into the Best Picture ten, mm-hmm. and it is always a little tougher when you're representing a movie. In this case, especially a Marvel movie on your own as an actor. Um, it'll definitely have BTL nominations, but um, it's worth keeping in mind as these narratives keep building for people like Brendan and Angela that there is always a tougher sell on that kind of score with the Academy, especially when the competition's fierce.
1: Well, and they're so international, right? Isn't that like what that yeah, the, the change exactly. in the voting makeup has been? It's not just like people in LA who have worked with you on a hundred different TV show sets. Um, the The work in some way, stands more on its own, which can work, you know, be for better or for worse sometimes.
3: I think there can also be a sense, and I think, I mean, my I have no way to prove this, but my theory with Close is that, like, a lot of people that year were like, oh, well, she's going to win, so let me vote for my yeah. little mm-hmm. passion choice, yes. you know? And then there were enough of those people who just assumed that there was a, uh, you know, a dominant narrative that it, it kind of was proven wrong. I don't think that's what's happening in Best Actor, because, like you, like we, you just said, like, it's kind of a three person race, and like, who knows? And that sense of inertia or of inevitability, rather, um, won't affect voting as much as, as it maybe did in the year with Close and Coleman.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, um, in sort of stark contrast to that narrative, how the Kate Blanchet speech played to you guys, because in the room... There was definitely a sort of an awkward moment when she was just kind of saying how these oh, televised awards uh, shows are <laughs> totally stupid and should go away when she was saying a set a televised awards sh- show. So um, and, you know, a lot of people in this room there that in that room, their whole livelihood is sort of based on <laughs> the awards campaign. So I'm curious what we thought of that speech.
1: I mean, Very I liked question. it, <laughs> but I see exactly what you mean. I mean, it's her kind of taking the like art above the horse race attitude about it, um, like in the middle of the horse race. But maybe that's something you can do when you feel pretty confident as a front runner, which, you know, we can talk about where things stand between her and Michelle Yeoh. I kind of thought Michelle Yeoh was going to win that. um, And Kate Winning seemed to, to cement her in a way she hadn't been.
3: And so a, a listener wrote in saying, was Blanchett maybe trying to put the heat off of her? Mm. Like saying, like, don't vote for me. I don't care about this. Like, vote for Michelle Yeoh or Andrew Riceborough, whoever, you know. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly what was her strategy. I think she just, you know, <laughs> doesn't think that this stuff is really worth anything. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that could affect it. I, I don't know. Blanchett has won pretty much everything, right? That she could yeah. have won. Yeah. So uh, as much as there is a lock, I mean, doesn't it feel that way at this point? I feel like this was the
0: place Michelle Yeoh probably
3: needed to win. I mean, it's still early,
0: but...
1: SAG is still looming in about a month. And
0: sa- SAG is still looming, but if they loved everything everywhere that much and and Kate had been kind of quiet around the voting period for the Critics' Choice Awards, she wasn't at the Globes, uh, she'd done a lot of press around release and then had, you know, not disappeared for a little while, but she was in production on another project. It feels like that undeniability factor... And the case, the fact that it's probably the only place TAR is going to win, uh, Mm. even as it's popping up really strongly, you know, even with DGA, PGA, it's hitting everything. Um, She feels out front. I mean, that seems pretty clear. And I don't know that, and I think I said this with the Golden Globes last week, you know, Michelle Yeoh giving a great speech is really crucial to her campaign. I don't know that Kate Blanchett's speeches really matter. I, I think that the vote is much more based on... The performance, the movie, uh, and not the career, especially because, if anything, it would work against her a little bit, um, given that she's already won two and Michelle yeah. has not won anything.
1: And speaking of things TAR can win, can we talk about Hilda Goodendarder winning for score for TAR, which is not Oscar eligible because it's so much <laughs> at Mahler. Uh, I think she does great work and it was very it was lovely seeing her and Sarah Polly celebrating, having both won for separate projects. But um, that was that was maybe the most surprising win of the night for me good for her
3: and also apparently so when you're watching from home they're like also awarded tonight like so and so for best whatever and I was like oh they must have been given the award earlier or during commercial break apparently that's how they found out was from that those seem to be announcements. The case.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I guess I was talking to the Glass Onion cast, and they actually found out on the carpet about one of their wins. Yeah, because Netflix
1: tweeted it, like as yeah. when the show first started.
2: <laughs> so we put it in our winners list. Yeah, and also the like I don't know what the logic is behind not awarding best ensemble on the show. It's like you're gonna have a bunch of stars on the stage. Uh, it's confusing the
3: choices that are made. Yeah. Well, also having the supporting actors have to come up together. Oh, yeah, God. that was and one of them waits. <laughs> the most awkward thing. Yeah. Although,
1: what was it? Jean Carlos Esposito and Jennifer Coolidge went up together and it was just like great I love seeing them like there were there were some good <laughs> pairs
3: Henry Winkler and Cheryl Lee Ralph that was yeah. like a fun moment because he was very gracious and gave her kind of this you know the spotlight and yeah, but it's just weird. It's a it's it's kind of a janky show, I gotta say. Like it's just when too there were much. shots of the audience. I was like, Did they not decorate this room? Like it's just I don't know.
2: Oh, we haven't even talked about the food, Richard. oh.
3: <laughs> you did Uh-oh. send a
0: picture, Rebecca. Yeah, I
2: sent a picture of the three piles of dip and two crackers that was our dinner. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Elizabeth Merriweather, excepting for the dropout, talking about her like
1: bread that she had eaten only. <laughs> that was the entire dinner.
3: I think you just, you know, need to pay critics more. That's that's all I'm saying.
1: Rebecca, before we move on from this busy weekend, um, BAFTA Tea and the AFI Luncheon were both untelevised,
2: so we didn't get to see them, but you were there. Anything you want to share about those? Well, they're both in the exact same room, so I'm a regular at the Four Seasons. But um, AFI Luncheon is one of my favorite events of the year. There's no speeches. There is no winners. It's just top 10 film, top 10 TV uh, shows that are being honored. And... It's interesting because they do, they sort of do a little sizzle reel from each of the films. And the only film that got an applause before the sizzle reel when they were introducing it was Everything Everywhere, Um, Hmm. which, you know, as I'm sitting there reading the room, I did find that to be a really interesting of note thing. Um, But it's just a really nice event where you see like Steven Spielberg going over to Mike White and just see these really like, people get to enjoy talking about their projects with each other without cameras and time speeches and stuff. So that one was yeah. nice. Um, BAFTA tea was super crowded. It's a standing room only kind of uh, cocktail lunch and tea event and um I had a buffet, which I found extremely disturbing, but uh, oh, for <laughs> COVID reasons—not for what the food for was. COVID, for COVID reasons, because people were using their hands. But um, but <laughs> it, it, you know, it's the same people you saw the day before. Mostly, uh, you know, again, it was another event where I felt like I saw a lot of people going up to Brendan Fraser, who was in the room, and I, I think those things are sort of notable. But it, there's also no speeches, so those those were kind of refreshing before the Critics' Choice to have these little uh, looser events that. I know people are still in good spirits for so um, overall uh, interesting. I we did talk a lot about to Leslie, but I know we're gonna get to that, so I'll just wait.
1: We're gonna get to that. Um, I wanted to also add that photographer Roger Kisby was also at the AFI Awards, and with your write up, you can see Roger's really excellent photos of the event that you're not gonna see anywhere else. Like um, Tramell Tillman of Severance, looking like he's like got a, like sparkles on his sunglasses, or like Jesse Buckley talking to Carrie Condon. Like there's it, it really captures
3: Wondry's new podcast, Blame It On the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, *Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
0: You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number.
1: Okay, Rebecca, you said it. Let's talk about Too Leslie. Uh, we've been talking about Too Leslie for days. Uh, every famous actress you follow on Twitter has probably been talking about Too Leslie also. Um, it is a movie uh, starring Andrew Riseborough that we read at <laughs> South by Southwest. I, I don't know the script, but you guys can tell me it. It's a small film with a big heart, et cetera, et cetera. I don't remember. Yeah, I have it in front rest. of me.
3: Don't miss Too Leslie, a small film with a giant, giant heart. heart. <laughs> yeah. 18 different people tweeted that exact <laughs> Yes. Furbyage.
1: So it premiered at South by South last year. It has it, she got a spirit award nomination. I believe it was on the Gotham's list of t- it, it's been around. But then all of a sudden it surged. Um, and so Rebecca, you spent this weekend of uh, seeing people in person to try to figure out why all of a sudden every actress in the world has been tweeting about to Leslie.
2: What did you learn? I spoke to several awards strategists over the weekend. And from what I understand, this awards campaign, which is very grassroots, is being funded by the filmmakers, the producers, and in part by Andrea. Um, And it has been strategically released just for the week of voting. That obviously makes it much less expensive and I think is a genius move. You know, so there are people on Twitter who are saying this is such a beautiful, organic movement. And I got to tell you, this is not organic. (laughs) Um, And so let's all just stop using that word. Uh, You know, she has a very well-connected manager. She herself is very well-respected by actors, especially. Um, And so it just feels like they took this moment to launch this campaign and it is a campaign. And, you know, it to me is working. I mean, how many of us on this podcast watched it in the last three days? I definitely did. Um, Me too. mm Yeah. yeah. So it worked.
0: It worked. It's She's great.
3: <laughs> yeah, she, is, she great. is great. I mean, I, I was talking about it with a friend the other night. Like if that movie had premiered at Sundance, gotten a better distributor who knew how to campaign it and release it in the fall, she absolutely would have been getting a nomination. Like no question in my mind. I mean, maybe, mm. maybe more so in like the mid 2000s. It's that kind of that size movie. But like. In another year, it, with a different kind of campaign behind it, I feel like this 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 weird semi-guerrilla thing wouldn't have had to happen at all. Um, but, you know, Melissa Leo released her own for-your-consideration ads, and then she won. So, who knows? Maybe this will work out for Riseborough. The director, uh, Michael Morris, is also pretty well-connected. He's directed a lot of TV. Um, his wife is Mary McCormick, the actress— I was listening to Andrew Riceborough, who was on Mark Marin's podcast because he's also in the movie, um, also
1: really good in it. I would really say he's good. Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. And and he was saying that he didn't want to do it because it's more dramatic acting than he's used to doing. And then he said, and then the director got Chelsea Handler to kind of cajole me into doing the movie. And it's like, okay, so there is. This uh-huh. is a very well connected <laughs> movie uh, because it, you know it's it's a small town in some ways, and everyone knows each other, and hopefully enough people like you and your work that they want to advocate for it either pre production or post. Um, um, and so I think that's what's happening. And obviously, you know, Rebecca, you've gotten sort of more concrete info about that, but it was a funny phenomenon to watch and then to actually watch the movie. And for the most part, I mean, I think it's a little bit like rich people's idea of what poverty is like, but Riseborough herself is great. And so it kind of does live up to this, um, very, uh, non-traditional campaign.
2: A rep actually referenced, um, Sally Kirkland, who in 1987, um, actually got a nomination for Best Actress for this film, Anna, that she, um, which is a small indie um, about an aging performer and that she totally self-funded the entire campaign.
0: One other piece of this that's come up a lot is <laughs> we've all dissected and uh, obsessed over this sudden, you know, intense effort is a um, comparison to Penelope Cruz last year, which I've seen a lot. And there is some truth to it in that, you know, I remember Rebecca and I were, you know, when we interviewed an actor and we asked them what performances they loved, she came up virtually every single time. Mm. Um, but that to me actually was organic. It was not stuff that was being tweeted as much. Um, and not in this cer-
1: lockstep in the language. Certainly
0: no copy pasting. And it was a movie that, you know, she'd won multiple major critics awards. It was in a Moldavar movie. It was a Sony Classics movie who have a track record of doing this kind of thing. Uh, this kind of late campaigning, I should say. Um, with this, it's it's unusual for many reasons, but in large part because of the timing. Because, you know, Re- Rebecca, you mentioned that this very, the targeting of just before Oscar voting, which is kind of ingenious, but there's also such a high risk of complete failure in that because if you don't have, which she seems to have quite literally hundreds of actors lined up for this, the campaign does, you know, if that weren't the case, this would just be, you wouldn't even notice. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I got the first, my, I checked my email and did my spam searches and everything. And my first ever FYC invite for this movie was over the weekend. You know, there was no ability to have any awareness of it. And in that Mark Maron interview that you were referencing, Richard, she talked about, you know, just these movies not having the kind of support or infrastructure with the wrong distributor. Mark Maron kind of vaguely referenced some messing up when it came to getting the film in front of voters. I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but there was so much evidently riding on this working, this kind of timing working and whether or not she gets in. And I I do personally believe you have to consider the possibility based on the amount of Academy members we know of who are all but stating they are voting for her very high on their ballots. It's a huge victory and a huge um, dismantling of the conventional wisdom that you could get this far and suddenly be considered in like the top eight or so out of nowhere and truly out of nowhere.
2: Yeah. I want one of the publicists joke that if this works, everyone's going to want an Andrea Riceboro campaign from now on. So <laughs> yeah. they seem terrified
1: of
3: <laughs> that. I mean, I'll also say to the credit of the Spirit Awards nominating committee, they saw it, you know, yep. like it was on their yeah. radar. And they had a similar thing with Mary Kay Place and Diane uh, or that maybe that was Gotham's. Um, but she with that was kind of a small campaign out of a Tribeca film, and um, and she won that. And I think LA Film Critics for Best Actress. And these little movies can do it. And I I think like the Riceboro thing. I was. I think if history was a little different, like if Maggie Gyllenhaal had been nominated for Sherry Baby, which it looked like she was going to be for, you know, a week or two there, however many years ago that was, but then it didn't happen. Like, I think I would, I would say, yes, there's more of a path for Riseborough, but I guess there was for Sally Kirkland all those years ago. At this point, I think it would just be a fun story if it if it worked out that way. But then you have to ask, like, okay, who would she bump out? Um, And maybe the obvious answer would be, like, Anna de Armas. Except that people keep mentioning Anna de Armas in reference to Riceboro, too, because they're, like, those huge breakneck performances. Like, I don't know. Maybe they cancel each other out, or maybe they can't exist without the other. I don't know. So, Frances Fisher, who is,
0: in my opinion, the unofficial campaign manager here, she has been (laughs) breathless in her social media posts about this movie and performance. She had an Instagram post where she actually listed actors that she considered locked. And she said, and I believe I'm getting this right, that Kate, uh, Viola, and um, Michelle Michelle were locked. And then she added in Danielle dadweiler and then she changed up the order in another edit so Danielle wasn't last. It's very bizarre. It, this did happen. Mm-hmm. And it, so I, I, this is so involved that clearly the people hoping this can happen, the peers hoping this can happen, are also thinking about who she can bump out and in what order that would be. And there's so much math going on here. I don't, you know, between the amount of people supporting her and whether it's enough and exactly your question, Richard, who she would bump out. It's so complicated that I I find it very exciting (laughs) and very, very strange.
3: What if Michelle Williams, in a totally principled way, months ago, deciding to run and lead for Fablemans. What if somehow she gets bumped out by Andrew Riceborough and then the whole gambit was for not, you know, for, for that Fablemans nomination? I mean, that that's something that could happen, because Williams has been definitely fading, I think, um, not getting a SAG nomination, for example. Um, but... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I also wonder with this kind of late-breaking, we only had this much money, and so we had to do it in this short window of time, like, but that means probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca or David, like, two Leslie didn't do, like, Screenings and no. cocktails and all that stuff until right? like-
1: the last week, where there are like Kate Winslet's hosting screenings, right?
0: Yes, i, I received I received an invite that I think it was Demi Moore hosted that one. Kate Winslet moderated one virtually. Amy Adams is moderating one Jesus Christ, today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I've heard of like people. I, I haven't seen evidence of this, but people like Catherine Keener and people who are kind of outside of that immediate bubble supporting her. I don't. I don't know where that is coming from, but. There, there are all of these th- little minglings happening. Yeah,
3: isn't that kind of what Julia Roberts did for Javier Bardem for Beautiful? Right? Like mm-hmm. that's actually a really good example. She went to bat for him big, and then he did get that nomination. And but the movie didn't win anything. And then we had to have Birdman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Consider the Butterfly Effect,
3: <laughs> which Andrew Riceboro is in. It's all connected. Yeah, that's
1: true. The thing I <laughs> want to be careful about with two Leslie is I like. I don't want it to us just be us being like well we didn't approve of this movie so how can it possibly be in the Oscar race because it did just skip critics and reporters so thoroughly like I've been thinking about a love song um, which Dale Dickey is in David you interviewed her for this podcast earlier this year it got spirit nominations it kind of had what's a more traditional path for a small movie to get somewhere like this where it just builds buzz among writers for a long time before starting a thorough campaign like this and I think if Andrea Risborough gets a nomination then maybe these actresses are going to be like see we don't need you guys and like maybe have a point. Maybe this is a humbling moment for all of us to to recognize our power here.
0: Totally. I mean, yeah. we really are at the whims of campaigns to an extent. There's just <laughs> yeah. too many movies. <laughs> it's it's not and sometimes we are led very astray for sure. I mean, how much hype was there about Bardo, for example, going mm-hmm. into Venice? And there are definitely admirers of that movie, but that movie was never a Best Picture contender and I would have said that from the moment I saw it. You know, yeah. that's, that's just how this goes is there is investment made in certain movies. There's a price that is paid for certain movies. um, And this is a very low budget indie that had a very small distributor. And yeah, I mean, I you're completely right, Katie, that it would be great if a movie like this could upend that a little bit and show that these small movies do have a path, but it also just feels so specific, you know, that, yeah, I I think Dale Dickey is tremendous in A Love Song. I think A Love Song is a better movie. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, there was not that groundswell for her, even if she is another, you know, journey actor um, who got this real showcase. So it's also very case by case. And there's still a ton of movies that just didn't have that ability that I did see before this. And
3: and Dale Dickey's performance is more minimalist, you know, yeah. and, and Riceboro is doing a lot, you know, in in into Leslie. And I don't mean that pejoratively. It's just, it's, no, a big, yeah, it's a much bigger performance with a more high drama to play. And I think that can definitely catch the attention of people. And look, I'll admit, like, I should have known about this movie a lot earlier than I did. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a sobering kind of wake up where it's like, I can't always wait for things to come to me. Like, maybe I should Mm -hmm. look at the South by Southwest lineup, see what people said about this little movie with an actress I think is amazing and has been since she first, you know, showed up. Um, And I, you know, I could have caught it in last spring, you know.
1: But also how many times have there been tiny movies like this that critics do get behind and support and like really want to will that nomination to existence and it doesn't work. Like, I think the celebrities have more power when it comes to this very specific kind of push.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I don't think the celebrity should have all the power. I don't think the. Take, the I know, but Boy honestly,
1: stands, I David.
0: <laughs> the the take there is there is this corner that's like, yeah, so actors supporting actors, and it's like, well, not really. It's incredibly famous people supporting someone who's slightly less famous for the most part. Yeah, yeah I mean, most of them copying
2: here. and pasting a thing onto Twitter. I, d- I yeah, I mean, yes. I think we can both be excited by this prospect that this means in the future there is a chance for you know actors and films that we feel like are getting ignored and aren't able to give that, that don't have the funds for a huge campaign, but at the same time acknowledge that this is also a real campaign. It's just a very different one um, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, happening sort of unprecedented and, and God, I love the drama of it all. I'm so happy (laughs) this is happening.
1: Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch
0: the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
1: So quickly, before we wrap up, Richard, you're heading off to Park City this year for the first time yep. in three years. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone thinks they caught COVID at Sundance 2020. So I'm hoping it goes better in that sense this year. be
3: um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too.
1: We're all yeah. excited for it. Uh, David and Rek and I will be participating virtually. You'll be there in person. Um, what are you excited about returning to an in-person Sundance?
3: I think the big thing with Sundance is the audiences, you know, and they can sway you towards, <laughs> you know, psychosis in terms of what, what a movie is going to be like when it gets um, down from the mountains, or it can really, like, help draw attention to something that's really worthy. And and I, so I think being in the room, obviously the virtual Sundance worked for Coda, you know. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's not to say that in-person is so much better than, than what they've done during COVID years, but I think it'll make a difference. And I think especially because this year – um, it feels a little bit lower wattage, and I, but I think kind of in a good way, in a way that Sundance should. I think that there's a lot in the lineup that um, is, could be discoveries versus kind of preordained stuff like a Kenny Lonergan film or whatever else. Sorry, I'm not friends with him. Kenneth Lonergan. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, there's no Taylor Swift Netflix documentary premiering on opening night, which uh, how, how that movie was an independent film, I'll never know. But um you know, so I, I, But but that, that said, there is kind of some stuff glowing on the horizon, like Nicole Hall of Center's film with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, called uh, You Hurt My Feelings, which is a fun title, and I hope that movie's fun. There's Cat Person, based on the uh, viral New Yorker short story. When has that phrase ever been said before, Cat Person? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's stuff like Barry Jenkins produced a movie called All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt, that seems interesting. There's an A24 movie called Past Lives, which is written and directed by Celine Song, who is a really uh, kind of lauded up-and-coming playwright that's a, f- a lead role for Greta Lee which is exciting she's been a great performer for a number of years and it's it, that's a fun Sundance thing is to see someone who doesn't normally get a big lead role get a big lead role and then have it premiere at a major film festival so there's definitely stuff in the lineup I'm gonna have a curtain raiser up by the time this episode drops and then I'll be filing reviews and other things you guys will be doing stuff remotely um so yeah we're gonna try to give Sundance the old-fashioned uh coverage that uh, we haven't been able to give it in a few years
1: yeah, David and Rebecca, anything that you... I, I honestly am so behind on looking through the lineup because Oscar season has been so distracting. So I, I need your guidance on what I should look forward to.
2: Cat Person is definitely at the top of my list. Uh, Amelia Jones has two films at the festival. So uh, her other one's called Fairyland. Um, I'll have a piece out with her this week about both.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm very excited for the Iris X movie Passages and also Eileen, um, which stars Thomas McKenzie and Hathaway. It's a... It's an Otessa Marschweig adaptation that, uh, based on the book, uh, it'll have to be
3: interesting in one way or another. And from the guy who made Lady Macbeth, right, with Lawrence yes, Pierce, which is exactly. such an interesting movie. And Corey Finley has a new movie, which I'm excited to see. Gail Garcia Bernal is playing a gay wrestler in a movie called Cassandro that I'm curious about. Um, there's this Harvard-Westlake alumni movie called Theater Camp. that's Ooh. like ben platt and a bunch of a a couple other people molly gordon i believe is involved um and you know so that could be kind of a silly sundance comedy there's some horror stuff as usual um so yeah i'm i'm excited i mean it's gonna have to be exciting because i looked at the weather forecast it's gonna be so cold
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh now we're back to the sundance forecast weather forecast You know, we won't really get a chance to talk about Sundance next week because the Oscar nominations are coming out. So it'll be in two weeks that we can really talk about it. And by then we'll know, like, really know which of these we're going to be talking about in a year. So right now it's all these exciting mysteries ahead of us. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We're changing up the programming a little bit. Uh, Tuesday is usually our interview episode, but that is the day of the Oscar nominations. So we will have our nominations reactions episode that day and interviews on Thursday. Just a little bit of a reversal. And as I said, after that, we'll have else to talk about. So lots on the horizon. Um, you can find us at VanityFair.com. Find Rebecca's excellent coverage of this busy weekend in awards. Uh, our last couple of award season pieces. Uh, David and I both had shot lists go up this week for Avatar and Tar. What a combo. You can find us on Twitter, HWD, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and David.
0: David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca.
1: Rebecca M. Ford. And Richard had to go to a Sundance screening, but he is at Rylaws. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of this podcast goes to Richard Lawson.
3: I think the word you're looking for is prestigious.